0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for October 26th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile, this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Earlier this month, a United Nations panel of scientists issued a special report describing as more dire than previously thought the likely effects of climate change, and particularly worrisome that its most cataclysmic impacts can be expected sooner than they'd imagined, many within the next couple of decades. In April, defending a climate change suit brought by the city of Oakland, Fossil fuel giant ExxonMobil largely conceded that the UN panel's scientific assessments were a reliable reference for the court, though noting the company did not adopt every statement made in the panel's reports. For its part, the Trump administration's State Department accepted the UN report's summary for policymakers, though diplomatically stressing that such acceptance did not represent an endorsement, though in August, the administration's National Advisory Traffic Safety Administration stipulated that, assuming business as usual— global temperatures will rise 7 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. I should note in passing that that stipulation was part of a report recommending the rollback of Obama-era tailpipe emission standards under the theory such a rollback would make cars on the road in general more safe and also less expensive. Yet this growing recognition, including from some surprising quarters, that temperatures are rising and starting to trigger foreboding signals like more damaging weather events, worse wildfires, and rising seas, has not been accompanied by much remedial action at the federal government level. Indeed, of late, some steps have been taken to loosen environmental regulations, generally in the name of economic interests and free enterprise. With an inactive or, in some cases, counteractive national legislature then, many parties have taken to the courts to attempt to advance an environmental agenda and also to protect from federal preemption some environmental efforts undertaken by local and the state governments. In both instances, whether parties are suing fossil fuel companies or governments to force action, Or instead in court defending action taken by local and state governments, looming over any environmental litigation is now and for the foreseeable future a firmly conservative Supreme Court, one whose Republican appointed members to judge from their jurisprudence and partisan tilts are fairly described as more business friendly than environmentally friendly, at least when those interests seem to compete in appeals. In its last major environmental case, a slightly more left leaning court, still with Anthony Kennedy, struck down 5-4 to four the centerpiece of Barack Obama's second-term climate agenda because the EPA had not considered the economic impact of its regulations on mercury emissions and other air pollution. The court did side with environmental interests in a significant 2007 appeal, holding that the EPA could regulate tailpipe emissions under the authority granted by the Clean Air Act, but in that 5-4 ruling, Chief Justice Roberts dissented, along with Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, who... Had they been joined by Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, presumably would have tipped that case the other way. With all that in mind, environmental advocates may need to rethink the sorts of arguments they craft in climate change suits that could find their way up to the high court. We saw one example of this just yesterday, as New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood sued ExxonMobil under a consumer protection and securities fraud premise, claiming the company misled shareholders in undervaluing the impact climate regulations will have on ExxonMobil's bottom line. And on today's show, we are joined by two environmental advocates both engaged in this ongoing thought process of the best ways to advance environmental causes in the age of a conservative Supreme Court. One is Professor Michael Allen Wolfe from the University of Florida College of Law, whose recent article, Right Environmentalism, explains how attorneys could package environmentally friendly causes in conservative friendly arguments, ones based on concepts of federalism and textualism, for example. And we'll hear from Philip Gregory, It's a California attorney working on perhaps the most prominent climate change suit ongoing right now, though it's one for the moment held by the U.S. Supreme Court in abeyance. This past weekend, the New York Times profiled Gregory's co-counsel, Julia Olson, who, with Gregory, heads a class of young plaintiffs that is suing the federal government on Fifth Amendment substantive due process grounds for dragging its feet on climate change, despite, Gregory says, the government being well aware of the impending impacts for the past several decades. The suit has survived multiple preliminary appeals to the Ninth Circuit with the government, including Barack Obama's DOJ, attempting every procedural resort to avoid the case being heard on its merits. Its trial, tentatively scheduled to consume a substantial 50 court days, was set to begin Monday until the Supreme Court issued an administrative stay after previously denying one this summer. Some view the case as a long shot with dubious constitutional grounding, but Gregory says the Fifth Amendment guarantee of life, liberty, and property necessarily entails a secure and stable climate in which to enjoy those rights. We'll hear from both those guests in just one moment, but first, let's get to our opening briefs. On Monday, California employment attorneys got some clarity from the 4th Appellate District on how state courts will apply the new ABC test for determining whether workers are appropriately deemed employees or independent contractors. The case puts into concrete form what many had been saying, that the new test created by the state high court earlier this year is more worker-friendly. The appellate panel reversed a summary judgment that had been granted to the defendant employer, finding that the ABC test showed at least that the employer had failed to carry its burden of proof. In the Ninth Circuit, an alien tort statute claim was also given new life, as a panel decided Tuesday in favor of a class of former child slave plaintiffs who were forced to work on cocoa farms in the Ivory Coast by local producers largely coordinated by American companies Nestle and Cargill, the plaintiffs allege, the suit is premised on the Alien Tort Statute, a legal theory losing purchase, of late, in American courts for harms perpetrated outside the U.S. borders by non-American actors against non-Americans, but the panel deemed that sufficient connections may exist between the American firms and the producers on the ground in Africa for the case to at least pass the dismissal stage. And some news on the future. Ninth Circuit this week, despite Congress being in recess, two confirmation hearings proceeded swiftly on Wednesday before a largely empty Senate Judiciary Chamber with only two Republican senators. And no Democrats present. With a bit more on these under the radar hearings, we welcome our Ninth Circuit beat reporter, Nick Sonnenberg. Nick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: So, Congress is in recess. So, how are these confirmation processes for these two Ninth Circuit appointees going forward with essentially nobody there?
1: Um, Yeah, it's certainly an interesting development. As of now, the Senate Judiciary Committee has technically met twice while Congress is in recess. To consider federal judicial nominees once on october 17th and more recently on october 24th it's somewhat unprecedented diane feinstein the ranking member of the democratic uh side of of the committee has objected strongly to the decision by chairman chuck grassley to move forward with these hearings saying that it's completely unprecedented to move forward In a Congressional recess, when the minority party doesn't agree to such meetings, Grassley is justifying his decision to move forward by saying that Feinstein repeatedly requested throughout September and October to delay scheduled hearings, something he agreed to, and because she repeatedly requested postponement and continues to request postponement, he's decided to move forward forward. When Most senators are home campaigning.
0: Uh, most senators not being there. So who who was there at the proceedings? And could you tell me a bit about uh, how they went?
1: So on the uh, 24th, two Ninth Circuit nominations were under consideration and only two senators uh, showed up. Idaho Republican Mike Crapo chaired the uh, hearing in Grassley Stead and uh, Utah Republican Orrin Hatch was present. The hearing lasted only 20 minutes, at least for the circuit nominees, and Crapo was the only one to actually ask questions. Uh, Hatch was there, offered a few congratulatory remarks, but inquired nothing of the two nominees.
0: And just one last one, who are these two nominees?
1: Eric Miller is the chair of Perkin Cooey's Appellate Practice in Seattle, Uh, He was nominated amid some controversy uh, in July to a Ninth Circuit seat. Both Senators, Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell, Democrats of Washington, have said, uh, have come out in opposition to his nomination. Neither of them, to my knowledge, have commented publicly on his qualifications or credentials or ideology, but are upset about the consultation process. They say that the White House rushed forward, without allowing them time to consider the nominee. White House and Grassley have refuted that characterization. And the other nominee is an Arizona pick uh, for the Ninth Circuit. She is a magistrate judge, Bridget Shelton Beatty. There had been lots of negotiations over an open seat in Arizona, extending over, I believe, a two-year period, when Senators, the late Senator John McCain, Um, had some objections to people the White House was pursuing, but it looks like before he died, he gave his blessing to this nomination. Jeff Flake has also expressed support. And so it looks like Judge Beatty will not face much serious opposition, at least from Republicans going forward.
0: Uh, Nick Sonnenberg, our Night Circuit beat reporter. Thanks, Nick, for hopping on. Appreciate it.
1: You bet. Thanks for having me.
0: Professor Michael Allen Wolf is the Richard E. Nelson Chair in Local Government Law at the University of Florida Levin College of the Law. He recently published in the Arizona State Law Journal a piece entitled Right Environmentalism, Repurposing Conservative Constitutionalism, in which he outlines some strategies environmental advocates might do well to adopt to appeal to a conservative-leaning Supreme Court. He joins us now. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, the general conceit behind your article is that environmental advocates now were the next 10, 20 years, are likely to meet with a firmly conservative Supreme Court. So you write that advocates, environmental advocates facing a more right-leaning court will need to get creative with the way in which they present arguments that could appeal to the justices. In particular, your your piece suggests some ways in which those advocates could use established principles of conservative jurisprudence, firmly espoused by right-leaning justices, to, to reach judicial outcomes that benefit environmental causes. Your article first sort of rests on some premises a few of which I, I hope to unpack. One, that the current federal government occupied executive and legislative branches by the Republican Party at the moment won't act with any terrible concern as to the impacts or really the existence of, of climate change. You say that... In
2: fact, in fact, they might be doing things to enhance global warming, so it's doubly problematic. It's not that they're not doing anything. It's that the federal government's probably doing things to make matters worse.
0: Another premise you put forward is that... Uh, the current Supreme Court is fairly ideological and particularly with adherence to a few isms you hear a lot about these days, federalism, textualism, originalism. And uh, another premise is that the traditional sorts of environmental law-related arguments uh, will not be persuasive to, to the current court. What are some of those traditional um, lines of attack brought by environmental advocates and how exactly will they fail with, uh, with the court as it's currently composed?
2: Well, I would call them ought to arguments. Environmentalists and advocates and their advocates tend to make ought to arguments to courts all the time, saying that the private sector ought to comply with certain standards, or federal agencies ought to enforce the laws that are on the books more strongly. And it's those kinds of ought to arguments that I think are just not going to win. They they rarely have won in the past. And I think there's very little likelihood they're going to win in the future. And an ought to argument is a political argument. It's trying to uh, imagine that the justice is voting for or against a certain policy. And I like to think of the Supreme Court as a mini legislature. And I know that goes against a sort of an idealized version of the courts, particularly the United States Supreme Court. But I think it's a much more realistic version. And, and and thanks to cases like Bush v. Gore, and thanks to confirmation hearings like the one we just went through, I don't sound like a radical when I say something like the Supreme Court is the political body. But I like to think of them as a the legislature. And I think so many arguments in the past, over the past 34 years, these ought to arguments are really Arguments that are made to the members of this mini legislature that they ought to support a certain policy And it's a really a political argument now If it's a question of winning a political argument if it's a question of whether environmentalists are going to win in these arguments th- The answer is clear. They're not going to win these arguments as Richard Lazarus pointed out years ago there there has never been you know there has not been a committed environmentalist on the United States Supreme Court since Bill Douglas retired. So there's nothing in the background of any of the justices that we have or many of their predecessors that would indicate they were strong environmentalists. So if you're acting, if you're asking them to make a positive vote, a politically based vote on environmentalism and sustainability, it's a losing proposition. So what I'm suggesting instead is that the court, you want to appeal to their ideological side and not to their political side these are nine highly intelligent people. You can't fool them. You can't try to disguise uh, an environmentally friendly policy as business friendly. They're not, they're, not gonna, they're not gonna fall for it, and we don't expect them to fall for it. But they choose so few cases nowadays, just a few dozen civil cases are decided by the high court, that it's easy to speculate that they choose high profile cases and they choose cases that are appealing to them from an ideological perspective, like this would be a good case based on my Federalist principles or Textualist or Originalist or Libertarian principles. And so that's the opening that I, I I would wish, I would hope that environmental advocates would try to, to go for.
0: Okay, to help illustrate the ways in which some recalibrated conservative-based arguments could be successfully posed to a more conservative court to affect some environmentally friendly outcomes, you paint a few illustrations, a few hypothetical scenarios. The first one deals with the way in which a, a state might go about seeking to compel companies within its borders, natural gas fracking companies, to compel them to to just say, to disclose the, the types of chemicals that they put into the ground. A natural enough state law, perhaps, but one you could envision that an e- the EPA under the current administration might uh, seek to preempt, essentially perhaps mm-hmm. to protect the proprietary rights of those companies. So say the EPA writes a regulation preempting that law, saying the state state can't force disclosure of those chemicals, the state would then sue. Then walk me through the argument here. It seems to proceed along sort of federalist uh, federalism lines, right?
2: Right. So – it, it, it would be a standard uh, preemption argument that the government would make. And I, in my article, I cite specific provision of the Energy Policy Act of 2005, which describes underground injection. And they could, they could use the, fed, the federal agency, could, the EPA could use that as their hook for the preemption of a state law, of an environmentally uh, friendly say, state law re, uh, requiring the uh, companies to um, reveal the contents of this fluid. Now, what I'm arguing is what I'm saying is that the advocates for this state statute should make an anti preemption argument now the again, the ought to argument is. You ought not preempt this statute because it's really there for the public interest. It's really there to protect us. We don't know what chemicals are used and the chemicals, this fluids do spill and they cause groundwater pollution, et cetera, et cetera. That's an ought-to argument. I don't know that the current set of justices who form the majority of the Supreme Court are going to buy that kind of ought-to argument. But you might be able to appeal to them based on a, an anti-preemption argument. Um, several of these justices are federalists. They're very strong federalists. And I don't mean federalists in the sense of the Federalist Society, which is really a libertarian organization, you know, according to their website. But I mean federalists that believe in the principle of dual sovereignty. And they're not sure, really, that the state is not as important, that the state government is not as important as the federal government. You know, the belief that the states created the federal government under the original Constitution. Now, this happens to be an argument that I don't believe. As an historian, as a lawyer, I don't believe this argument. But it is an argument that should be made in order to win the case. In order to protect this valuable statute, the argument should be made the federal government doesn't necessarily preempt the uh, state government in this case. And that states, qua states, are very important. And that a court should think seriously about telling a state legislature that they are overstepping their bounds, unless it is clearly a conflict with a federal statute. So that's the kind of argument I'm talking about making. I might not believe that principle. I might not believe the underb- underlying principle of dual sovereignty and state sovereignty, but that doesn't make a difference. I'm trying to win a case.
0: Sure. And, and like you said, in each of these scenarios that you, that you set out, you also cite some language from previous Supreme Court cases written by uh, Mm -hmm. conservative justices here. You cited one uh, passage written by the Chief Justice about how he finds that states do perform many, many vital functions. The Constitution is specifically expressly authorized the federal government to, and so that would seem to reflect his respect for the state's ability to, especially maybe in this context with with, uh, health and safety um, at issue, uh, respect their ability to, to regulate here.
2: Yeah, I mean, we can count on the Chief Justice. I could cite a couple of cases in which the court, he has articulated this principle. But also, um, Justice Thomas, for example, has expressed extreme skepticism about certain forms of implied preemption. And he wants to see that, you know, he's more comfortable with express preemption. He's not so comfortable with the outer reaches of what we call purposes and objectives preemption. And again, take advantage of that. I mean, if you think about it purely in in in, a num- in in terms of numbers, if we could say that in some of these cases we could count on getting four votes, that environmentalists could count on getting four votes, all you need is one more vote, is one more vote, and that and that doesn't even have to be that doesn't have to be a justice who joins the opinion. These this is a court that loves to write concurring opinions. In fact, sometimes justices who are in the majority or join another dissent file their own concurrence with that dissent or with the majority opinion. So a four one vote is the same as a five you know, four one four vote is the same as a five four vote when it comes to winning the case. But that's what I'm suggesting. Is explain to the justices that are either on the fence or who you think are in the opposition how there is an important ideological principle at stake here, and that they can vote in favor of your position, vote in favor of your client, and, you know, even if they don't endorse the rationale used by the other, say, four justices in the majority.
0: Okay, uh, there's another interesting scenario that you paint that describes a, a, a party taking advantage of the, the Supreme Court's aversion to to the Chevron Doctrine, the, the Chevron Deference right. Doctrine, deferring to agency def- definitions of statutes as opposed to, of course, defining them, them themselves. So uh, this is a scenario that I think there's been at least uh, some preliminary action on, uh, referring to mm-hmm. how far the reach of the Clean Water Act protects navigable waters of the United States. It was complained by many that EPA defined that law as reaching too far as covering too much of the, uh, the waters in the country, in particular, for example, some, some wetlands in, in the U.S. So a tack maybe taken by the EPA or Army Corps of Engineers under this administration would be to, mm-hmm. to narrow that definition so fewer um, waters of the U.S. come within the protection of the Clean Water Act. So let's say, as you stipulate, the EPA has done that. They say uh, much of the wetlands are non navigable waters of the U.S. They're not protected by the Clean Water Act then environmental parties would sue seeking to say in effect that regulation sort of counters the spirit if not the letter of the clean water act that does put the court in an interesting position because the federal government have to come back and essentially at least first rely on chevron deference that the court should defer to the epa's rule or new regulation restricting the reach of that definition right yes
2: and and you know this one is is a promising avenue because um a few members of the supreme court and 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 kavanaugh might be among them just as kavanaugh might be among them have expressed concern about the chevron doctrine and how expansive it is and how aggressive it's used it can be used and i think this is the uh you know this scenario that i described would be a, a great opportunity to do that now one could say all right so let's say you win let's say environmentalists convince the court or at least one justice to join the other justices who are opposed to this narrow definition of orders of the united states you know there's a potential problem here i've i've presented this paper before and uh, one of the potential problems is are you giving away too much um does this mean you won't be able to make a a pro-chevron argument in a, in a subsequent case and you know of as Thoreau said, it's only the foolish consistency that's the Goblin little mind. It's not hypocrisy to make an argument, a pro Chevron argument in one case and an anti Chevron argument in another case. Your job is to keep your eye on the prize as an advocate and is to win the case. So I, I'm not really troubled by that accusation of inconsistency and, and uh, hypocrisy. The, if you can take advantage of uh, skepticism that Judge Gorsuch, now Justice Gorsuch has articulated, that Justice Scalia had articulated, that Justice Thomas has articulated, if you can take advantage of that skepticism, I suggest that you do that. Then the other answer is, okay, so fine. So let's say you win, and the court strikes down this new regulation, this new interpretation of waters of the United States by the the, uh, Corps and the EPA. Well, then Congress can just amend the Clean Water Act and that's my aha moment. Yes, they would have done that by now. They would have amended the Clean Water Act by now, and they haven't done it. The Republicans are in charge of all, you know, both legislative branches, and they haven't done it. And by all indications, their position will not be as strong in a few weeks, and who knows? Nobody ever knows what's going to happen. But If it would have been easy for them to do it, to redefine words of the United States, believe me, they would have done it by now. So my answer to that second argument is it's not so easy for any Congress to amend an environmental statute because they so rarely do it.
0: Let's unpack maybe one more of the scenarios that that you illustrate. There's one in which you say perhaps a state concerned with greenhouse gas emissions wants to encourage the local production and shipping and sale of products. So say they offer a a lower sales tax for companies that do, in fact, uh, Mm -hmm. make and transport and sell products locally. That would invite some suits perhaps from out-of-state producers of competing products who would rely on the dormant uh, commerce clause as preventing the state Mm -hmm. from uh, sort of interrupting – that interstate commerce that otherwise would occur. But as you say, several conservative justices, or Clarence Thomas, certainly most among them, is, is quite skeptical of that dormant commerce clause sort of read into the Constitution, not really expressly written. So tell me a bit, a bit about that mm-hmm. scenario.
2: Well, th- this, this is, you know, this is uh, as close to real life as you're going to get. That is a dormant commerce clause, a challenge to the whole idea that dormant, dormant commerce clause exists. Now, a textualist would say that the Dormant Commerce Clause makes no sense because the Commerce Clause tells us that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce among the several states. The Dormant Commerce Clause rewrites the Commerce Clause to say that Congress and only Congress shall have that power. So anybody who, you know, who like Justice Scalia would take out the dictionary first to resolve the case. Would say, you know what? I don't even see these words here, and that's not what the text says, and that's not what the ratifiers understood the Constitution to mean. So, Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, when Justice Scalia was alive, they didn't even call it the Dormant Commerce Clause. They called it the They called it the Negative Commerce Clause. And whereas Justice Scalia said, "I'm I I don't think this exists," but I. I will follow precedent, just not expand the notion. Justice Thomas has said, "I don't think it exists, and I won't even vote to recognize the doctrine." And there was an environmental case, United Haulers, in which those two votes were used by a majority that was cobbled together by the Chief Justice in an, you know, in a waste disposal, a case involving waste disposal that favored a local government. Now, there, uh, Justice. Gorsuch has expressed skepticism about the Dormant Commerce Clause, and I wouldn't be surprised if our newest justice also had, because he is such a strong textualist, would also have a problem with the Dormant Commerce Clause. So once again, you get a pro-environmental protection outcome at the expense of a doctrine that some of the more conservative Supreme Court justices have, have expressed discomfort with.
0: Okay, and uh, perhaps to close as as you do in your piece, you cite a couple of real-world historical examples of times where parties scored somewhat improbable victories for causes that the Supreme Court at the time was sort of known to, to frown upon. There's a couple of cases you mentioned. One is Mueller v. Oregon, a 1908 case dealing with an Oregon law forbidding employers from employing women in factories for longer than eight hours per day. Now, this is only a couple of years after the court had uh, struck down a, a similar law in New York that that, that famous Lochner case that forbid mm-hmm. men or women from working more than ten hours a day in, in bakeries. How did uh, how did but uh, the Supreme Court in the Oregon case upheld that uh, that restriction on employers? How did the the parties there go about you know facing mm-hmm. down a, the Lochner court and getting such a uh, sort of at the time progressive labor restriction upheld?
2: Well, it's a fascinating story, at least as a historian. I think it's a fascinating story. Um, Muller versus Oregon, those lawyers who think back to a law school, they'll remember it's the case that's most famous not for anything that was stated in the case, but for one of the briefs. Because this is the brief that gave us – this is the case that gave us the, Brand, the Brandeis brief. Now, uh, when I teach this case, I always say it really should be called the Brandeis-Goldmark brief. Who was Goldmark? Goldmark was Brandeis' sister-in-law. She worked for a reform organization, the National Consumers League. And this was a national organization that was very active in a number of liberal causes, uh, including labor regulation, regulation of wages and hours for workers. The um, organization, the National Consumers League, was headed by a woman, Florence Kelly, a, 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 a female lawyer. And Josephine Goldmark was one of the people who worked for her. It was very important in the organization. And I always like to stress this when I talk about the case. Because it was a case that was brought by a national reform organization that was headed by professional women. They wanted to have Louis Brandeis, the most famous progressive lawyer in the United States at the time. They wanted him to to handle the case. And the whole strategy behind the case was, to have a wedge into the law in, into Lochner. And Lochner was such bad news for advocates of good working conditions, of sound working conditions because the Supreme Court had basically vetoed the unanimous decision of the New York legislature to limit the hours of, of workers in uh, bakeries. Now we can argue back and forth as to why that statute was passed, but it but the effect of that sta- the effect of the case was to give anybody pause about passing legislation limiting the hours of workers. So Florence Kelly and her allies, their idea was they needed a wedge into this wall. And the wedge that they sought was this Oregon statute that protected the rights of women workers in certain industries. And again, I like to stress, these are professional women who were championing, who were trying to defend an Oregon law that gives special treatment to women they went to brandeis and brandeis said he would take the case as long as he could argue it and as long as he could make the arguments that he wanted to make and they went along with that deal working with Josephine goldmark he charged her to put together a research team and what they wanted to find they wanted to find statistical medical information not from just from the united states but from all over the the world the industrial world showing that laws limiting the working hours of women in industry were needed because of the different physical makeup of men and women. Women were the ones who had babies. Women were the ones who were allegedly weaker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And again, I'm, I'm saying this is not a man who wrote this brief. This is a man and a group of women who wrote this brief, professional women. They knew that if they made a leftist argument to the Supreme Court that just three years before had said that New York statue was unconstitutional, they knew they would lose. There was only one member of the Supreme Court who was no longer on the court three years later. They knew they would lose. So they decided to lead with their right, not with their left. The argument they made was very appealing to conservative sexist justices. They said women are weak, women are the ones who bear the children, women need the protection of the state and they need this kind of statute and the supreme court majority they bought it hook line and sinker and they specifically cited in a very long footnote they cited the brandeis goldbark brief it was right on target now i'm not saying this is perfect because later on advocates for women's rights like ruth bader ginsburg they had to deal with the legacy of Mueller versus oregon but I think we'd have to be naive if we would say, and although people have said it to say that without Mueller versus Oregon, they would not have to con have had to contend with sexism in the judicial branch. I think that's a foolish statement. it would have been there anyway. It's just that they had some ammunition that they would not have otherwise had that is the right had some uh, that that is not the right, but sexists had some more uh, ammunition given that opinion so yes, there is a I can't say this strategy is is going to work in every case and it's not going to have some negative ramifications. But Muller versus Oregon is a good example of how leading with the right can lead to a left outcome.
0: Um, if I could, I'd just like to ask you a question about the, the second example you give, too. If, uh, if mm-hmm. you have time. The other example that, that you said is a case about 10 years later, Buchanan versus Worley. Another mm-hmm. interesting one dealing with where the, the court ended up striking down a local ordinance that forbade... Blacks from moving into majority white neighborhoods. And this is still in the era where most folks on that court were around when separate but equal from Plessy v. Ferguson was affirmed. So how did the parties there go about reaching uh, that, that outcome?
2: Again, I think it's a this is a fascinating case. This is a 100-year-old case. It was decided actually now 101 years old. And it was a case in which the city of Louisville had adopted, like other cities in the south, in the border states, had adopted racial zoning saying that, but white people could not sell to non-whites in certain neighborhoods, and non-whites could not sell to whites in certain neighborhoods. And it was really it was an interesting fact pattern, because what had happened was the whole idea of the lawsuit was brought by an African-American uh, a- activist, who was the president of the uh, city's NAACP chapter, the first president. And what he did was he arranged to purchase a resident from a white real estate agent. So... The African-American's name was Worley, and the white owner of the property was Buchanan. The case is Buchanan versus Worley. And the idea was that they put a contract provision in there saying that Worley will buy or pay for the lot only if he could legally occupy the house on it. He knew full well that he couldn't legally occupy it, so they set up a lawsuit. And that's exactly what they did. And so the lawsuit was set up, and so the white landowner is trying to force the African-American to go through. Well, you know, it looks like he's trying to force the African-American to go through with the deal. The African-American says, oh, no, I can't occupy the house because I just discovered that this ordinance exists. Well, there were actually two briefs in this case for the winning side. The first brief made led from the left with an equal protection argument. This is a violation of the equal protection rights of African-American homeowners. It treats people differently. It creates. It it, it sustains the um, uh, second-class citizenship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Good old what I would call liberal leftist argument. Well, as as you mentioned, it was just a few years ago that the court said "separate but equal" is not unconstitutional, and this was a statute that created a separate, supposedly, unequal situation with housing in the city of Louisville. The other brief that was done by the National NAACP, the other brief led with the right. It led with a private property rights argument. They knew that this Supreme Court, who had just nine years before said separate but equal is okay, even though they knew it was separate but unequal, they knew those justices would not bite with the left argument. They figured they might bite with a private property rights argument. And they made the argument. This violates the fundamental rights of landowners to sell property to whomever they want, to basically to recoup their investment in this very important piece of property. And sure enough, it's the argument that won. Now, a lot of people cite Buchanan versus Worley as a, a, one of the rare examples of where the Supreme Court rendered an opinion in favor of african americans it is anything but it's that's not, not what it is it's another example in which the conservative supreme court championed the rights of private property owners and they said we're championing the rights of white owners who want to sell to non-whites and non-whites who want to sell to whites and that's another enduring example of you know what i would call leading with the right in a model for what could be what I call right environmentalism.
0: Your, your piece is certainly a fascinating contribution to this body of thought. And we'll see if we soon have some con- creative conservative sounding legal arguments presented to the Supreme Court. We'll leave it there for now, Professor Michael Allen Wolf from the University of Florida Levin College of Law. Thanks very much for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Philip Gregory of Gregory Law Group is co-counsel for a group of young plaintiffs suing the federal government for not doing enough to fight climate change and ensure they'll grow up to inherit a habitable country and planet. The group asserts constitutional due process and equal protection violations and awaits a stay in court which had been set for this Monday until the Supreme Court stepped in on the eve of trial to grant a temporary stay. Mr. Gregory joins us now. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. When, When folks think about climate change, maybe the first actors that tend to come to mind are companies or industries that tend to uh, extract and produce and and emit the generally agreed upon sort of predicate for climate change, greenhouse gases and and carbon and methane and the like. But And there are climate change suits brought against those actors. There was, I think, one pretty recently brought in the Northern District of California. You and your team have sued the U.S. government. Instead, why make them the focus of of your litigation efforts here?
3: Well, Brian, the case is a civil rights case based on the Constitution. Uh, the cases to which you refer are, were cases for monetary damages brought by uh, governmental bodies against the fossil fuel majors. For the cost, those governmental bodies will incur as a result of the nuisance created by the fossil fuel majors. Our case is uh, completely different. It's that the federal government has known, uh, certainly since 1965, that through the uh, emitting fossil fuels in a business-as-usual fashion, children now and future generations will face a uh, climate change catastrophe. And yet our federal government has not only not taken steps to control and scale back fossil fuel emissions, but has continued to put its foot on the throttle and essentially have emissions such that in the next 20 to 30 years will present our youngest generation in, with a uh, nation where the climate problems are similar to what we're seeing in these recent hurricanes, for example. It's a nation I don't want to leave to my children or grandchildren, and I'm surprised that anyone would permit such a fossil fuel system to continue to exist.
0: You claim the government is violating your group of plaintiffs, your group of young plaintiffs' Fifth Amendment rights to due process, and including their Fifth Amendment right to... Have a, a stable climate system that is uh, able to sustain life. There's also some Fourteenth Amendment claims and a public trust doctrine claim among your core arguments. I wanted to impact those a little bit, maybe focusing on, on the Fifth Amendment claim. So it seems like in your in your various filings, the Fifth Amendment rights you cite as being violated are sort of enumerated ones. You claim a violation of life, liberty, and property. But that other one, violation of the right to a stable climate system, has drawn some attention as you know not an enumerated right identified in the Constitution and one the government has said doesn't exist, that there is no Fifth Amendment right to a stable climate. What are your thoughts on, I guess, are you trying to sort of reinforce an established enumerated right or sort of uh, create this new right to a stable climate? What was kind of the the thrust of that Fifth Amendment part of the, the suit? Well,
3: starting back when our founders were drafting the Constitution, they obviously were not facing fossil fuel emissions like we're experiencing now. So you have to go back and you have to look at the founders' values when it came to our agrarian economy. And obviously, having a climate system capable of of sustaining human rights, human life, is is such a fundamental right that it shouldn't need to be directly uh, mentioned in the constitution for a court to enforce it and what we have here that's evolved certainly starting since the industrial revolution about whatever time frame you put it 150 125 years ago what you have had develop is a systemic problem where you have the federal government depriving children of fundamental rights, and that requires a structural remedy for a comprehensive plan. So what we, to go now to bore down a little bit in the Fifth Amendment, instead of climate change, let's say we're talking about civil rights. Let's say we're talking about segregation, because for years, Congress and the president refused to address the issue of segregation. Yet the federal government was extremely involved in not only keeping segregation alive but enhancing its problem. The court in Brown versus Board of Education and Bowling versus Sharp obviously stepped in there and addressed those problems, but it they addressed those problems because it was a systemic problem, much like what's occurring now with fossil fuels and climate change.
0: Maybe just one other point there as relates to your, your core arguments. I was curious about the public trust doctrine question. I've seen in the filing sort of repeatedly argued by the government that there is no federal public trust doctrine um, that can be invoked here. Uh, what, what is the fight over that specific doctrine, that idea, that, that the government holds in trust of resources for future generations?
3: Well, the public trust doctrine, again, is based on a fundamental premise that the sovereign, in this case, the federal government, serves as a trustee to protect fundamental natural resources. Let's use water as an example. And uh, let's say the federal government decided to pollute all the waters in America. Well, people would say that's wrong because the federal government as a trustee must ensure that these essential natural resources are protected for future generations. Those future generations are akin to beneficiaries of a trust. And so the public trust doctrine says that the sovereign acts in a fiduciary capacity towards the youngest generation and future generations to ensure these essential natural resources are available for them as they come of age.
0: Now, as you say, the case has not begun trial yet. Trial date set for the beginning of of next week at the moment. But certainly there's been a a lot of arguments offered by the government, first by uh, the administration of Barack Obama and now Donald Trump uh, against your claims. Most of those arguments tend to be sort of oblique ones, not really meeting head on those constitutional claims, but more so focusing on just questions of things like sort of preliminary questions like uh, standing and redressability. In particular, basically, the thrust of that argument being that even if there are some exigent concerns with impending climate change, it's more up to Congress and the executive agencies to make laws and regulations that that. Would tend to ameliorate the that problem, and it's less incumbent on the courts. And in fact, it would be sort of a, a violation of the separation of powers, and it would be the courts diving into a, a political question for them to essentially the government says you know make climate policy. I, I imagine that your side does not find addressability and separation of powers concerns to. Prohibitively problematic. What what is it, uh, your your response on those uh, lines of argument?
3: Certainly, certainly, Brian. Well, the fr- the first point to make is that the federal government, in its answer to our complaint, admits that climate change is occurring, admits that fossil fuels are the primary driver of climate change, and admits that climate change is harming. American, and yet it says that the courts should do nothing about it because this is something for Congress and the president to address. Well, again, I'm going to come back to civil rights. Obviously, Congress and the president, when it came to civil rights in the 40s and the 50s, were leading from behind. And it took the courageous court in Brown versus Board of Education, and it took, and this is very important, it took the heroic district court justices and it took the heroic circuit court justices particularly in the south to issue orders requiring such public entities as school districts to develop a plan to remove segregation from such things as the schools imagine you're a district court judge you're sitting in Alabama in the 1950s, and you have to enforce Brown versus Board of Education. That takes a heroic judge to do that. And right now, it is up to the third branch of government, the judiciary, to, to be courageous, to be heroic, and not to succumb to the political influences that are obviously creating policy in Congress, and in the executive branch. And that's why we've brought this case in the courts. It's extremely important to recognize that there is no other branch of government dealing with this, even though, as I began this answer, they admit it's a problem that is harming Americans and will soon reach catastrophic proportions.
0: One point you, you, as you've done a couple times now, you've related this case to historical examples of, of courts perhaps taking action that the other two branches of government were either uh, reluctant to or unable to. It seems important in having read some coverage of this case and hearing of you speak about it previously, it seems important to, to tie it to those historical examples because one claim that is brought. Uh, often against this case is that it it is entirely novel and and it seeks sort of sui generis, a completely new constitutional type of ruling. But as you have been doing it, you fully believe there's some grounding and some analogs in, in prior court history, I take it.
3: Absolutely. So, for example, the uh, dis- Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Plata when it was found that the California prison system was more than 200% overcrowded. In that decision, the three judge panel said that the court, that the prison system had to reduce overcrowding to 37.5% and develop a plan to do that or The judges were going to start releasing prisoners, and the Supreme Court upheld that decision because it is up to the district courts to address systemic problems, and that's what we have here. We have a fossil fuel energy system knowingly harming Americans that two branches of government refuse to take under control, so it's up to the courts. And that's, that's what the founders intended, and that's what our lawsuit is all about.
0: Being out here in the Ninth Circuit, we have witnessed a, a couple of instances where this case has gone up on appeal, where the government has, has asked the Ninth Circuit to instruct the district court to, to, to dismiss this case. The case has survived those multiple appeals. Previously survived a stay petition brought to the U.S. Supreme Court, but now last week a temporary stay was granted. One question I have for you is whether or not that sort of last-second stay seemed to be a surprise to your team, and and the other question I have was, what exactly is the the nature and the scope of that stay and the government's request? It sounds like the government is mostly claiming in that that petition or that stay request that the trial here would just be prohibitively kind of cumbersome and and costly and disruptive of its functioning to to deal with this case, but is that the extent of the Supreme Court's Review, or will it be weighing, you know, more substantially the case's merits as to whether those constitutional arguments, for example, have uh, have some force?
3: So, Brian, last Thursday, the Solicitor General filed a, a petition uh, for writ of mandamus with the Supreme Court, and accompanying that was a request for an administrative stay. On Friday, late in the day. Chief Justice, who was then uh, responsible as the circuit justice for the Ninth Circuit, uh, issued a stay of discovery in the trial and requested that we file briefing by the following Wednesday. First thing Monday morning, we filed our response brief. And just this morning, uh, Wednesday, the Solicitor General filed its reply. So the whole matter rests in the hands of the Supreme Court right now. The significance of of that uh, requires me to make several points. First, before applying to the Supreme Court on Thursday, the Department of Justice had petitioned the Ninth Circuit for the third time for a stay and, in essence, filed its petition with the Supreme Court before the Ninth Circuit had had an opportunity to act. The other thing that's important here is that the stay that was issued is merely administrative stay. The only issue before the Supreme Court right now is whether or not the stay should continue. And staying a trial, based on what I understand from various legal scholars, is unprecedented. That's never occurred and the reason they say this is of concern to them is that it's making the Supreme Court to micromanage cases before there's a full record uh, and the case is ready for an appeal. So, for example, in the future, the, uh, because this case is based on the trial court refusing to grant a motion for summary judgment and refusing to grant a motion for judgment on the pleadings, any time that occurs, the Solicitor General can, in essence, file a petition with the Supreme Court and uh, file an application for a stay when the federal government is a defendant and cite this decision as precedent. When we were arguing the petition uh, to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in December 2017, Chief Judge Thomas observed during the course of oral argument that if we let the federal government get away with what it was attempting to do then, the, the floodgates would be open and the Ninth Circuit would be inundated with petitions when a party loses on a motion to dismiss. Well, that's exactly what the Supreme Court should be... At- Avoiding here, opening these floodgates, whether at the circuit court level or certainly at the Supreme Court level, and should avoid setting precedent such that cases will be routinely filed with the Supreme Court seeking review of orders such as motions, denying motions for summary judgment. That is something we fear will occur in the future and we believe is uh, in and of itself grounds to deny the stay
0: here. Yeah. I mean, this case is certainly unique in, in many ways and perhaps uniquely broad and in its scope and perhaps requested relief. But having spent at least a, a few months in the Department of Justice, I, you know, the government gets sued all the dang time. So if they were, and I'm sure plenty of those suits are very expensive to, to fight. So if it became or if the Supreme Court were to, to, I guess, permanently stay this action, it would seem like it would be inviting The same sort of motion and a whole bundle of, of other suits that are that are brought against the government so
3: but another way of expressing the concern is the only thing the government asserts is its irreparable harm is that the department of justice has to spend 50 days in trial well that's what the department of justice does it tries cases so not one of the agency defendants named in this case put forward any evidence that it was going to be harmed by a trial. Thus, there's no assertions that the State Department is going to be called on to leak state secrets, or that somehow the president is going to be called to sit, stand, get up there, take an out, oath, and actually have to talk subject to the penalty of perjury. There's there's no assertions along those lines. Thus, to reiterate, the irreparable harm is merely that the federal government has to take climate science on trial and contest the climate science. And that's what they're claiming the harm is. To me, it's a bad precedent for the Supreme Court to stay this case when the only asserted harm is the Department of Justice having to go to trial on a case.
0: It's always struck me from the first time I heard about this case that aside from from the specific relief sought in the filings, that being a court order for the government to to do better when it comes to to climate change policy, it struck me that maybe almost an equal motivation behind the suit was simply just hashing out this fight, getting it to trial and having discovery, getting witness testimony, depositions, documentary evidence before courts and before the public, in which the government would concede that, yes, we've known for a while that climate change is a big problem. It is impending. It's getting worse. And it's caused in large part by us and by greenhouse gas emissions. So to some extent, I suppose there's some victory has already occurred because you've had a lot of discovery and deposed folks acting in the government. That seems, I guess, particularly important in a time when maybe the most visible parties in the government, namely the president, sort of send the, the opposite message that climate change is, is not real and not a not a problem. So I guess, you know, how big of a motivation was that alongside the, the actual relief that, that you seek? Well, I think one
3: of the important reasons our young plaintiffs filed this case is for them to be able to get the message out to other members of their generation that this problem is catastrophic, and that the youth of America need to address climate change. And we believe that through this case, we are inspiring youth to first learn about climate change. And obviously, we believe that when they do learn about climate change, they will discover that something needs to be done immediately. So hopefully, our young people and their parents and their grandparents will start themselves taking steps to deal with climate change, whether it's the type of car they drive or the, the way they power their house. But it's, it's one goal of this case, obviously, for our young plaintiffs, is to start getting people to change the way they use energy in their lives. And hopefully that message has gotten out to the youth of America.
0: Uh, then maybe just one, one last one. Do you, do you have, I guess, any sort of concluding thoughts on where we're at uh, this case now and, and uh, the course you might expect it to take it when it was first filed in 2015? I imagine you folks might have thought that an eventual appeal of a, say, victorious claim would meet a, a different Supreme Court than the one that, in fact, such a prevailing case would. Uh, what are your thoughts on this sort of case being brought in now, a time where uh, we have a pretty decided conservative majority at the the country's high court.
3: Well, Brian, when we first brought this case, as you observed earlier, we sued the Obama administration. We don't believe the conduct of the Obama administration was any better than the conduct of the Trump administration in terms of actual results. And we believe that our case is grounded in fundamental rights and in the theories and experiences of our founders at the time they drafted and ratified the Constitution. So that we believe if a full evidentiary record is developed and then brought up on appeal, we believe that even a conservative uh, majority on the Supreme Court will recognize the rights at stake and the system, a systemic violation and give us a favorable decision. Hopefully, this case will go through a full trial promptly because the harm is imminent and the need to address the concerns of fossil fuels is something only our judiciary will do.
0: Okay, Philip Gregory, the Gregory Law Group. Uh, Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Brian.
0: And with that, our program for October 26th is complete. Thanks again to all of my guests, Professor Michael Allen Wolf, Philip Gregory, and of course, Nick Sonnenberg. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And also thanks to you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. One hour of California CLE credit can be yours for having listened to the podcast. Just find a short true false test on the dailyjournal.com site where this program appears, complete that and an hour of credit can be yours. And also, don't forget to look for us on the various podcast streaming avenues that are out there. We can be found on the podcast app, and I believe just about anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching Weekly Appellate Report or by searching Daily Journal. Finding us there and subscribing, rating, and liking us is hugely appreciated as it helps others find the show. I'm Brian Cardale. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.